Our lesson of the day is 3 John. Listen carefully to God's Word. The elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth. Beloved, I pray that all may go well with you and that you may be in good health as it goes well with your soul. For I rejoice greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth, as indeed you are walking in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Beloved, it is a faithful thing you do in all your efforts for these brothers, strangers as they are, who testified to your love before the church. You will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God. For they have gone out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to support people like these, that we may be fellow, fellow workers for the truth. I have written something to the church. But Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first, does not acknowledge our authority. So if I come, I will bring up what he is doing, talking wicked nonsense against us. And not content with that, he refuses to welcome the brothers, and also stops those who want to and puts them out of the church. Beloved, do not imitate evil, but imitate good. Whoever does good is from God. Whoever does evil has not seen God. Demetrius has received a good testimony from everyone and from the truth itself. We also add our testimony, and you know that our testimony is true. I had much to write to you, but I would rather not write with pen and ink. I hope to see you soon, and we will talk face to face. Peace be to you. The friends greet you. Greet the friends, each of them, by name. The word of the Lord. Let us pray. Gracious God, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for your promise that your spirit is at work through the preaching of your word. Open our hearts now that we would receive your truth, that we would submit to your word, that we would be transformed by it. And may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Jesus came to give you abundant life. That's right. Though He was rich, yet He, for your sake, became poor so that you, through His poverty, might become rich. What? You don't have an abundant life? You're not rich? Well, what's the problem? You do not have because you do not ask God. You need to test God. Bring your tithe into the storehouse and see if God will not open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will not be enough room to store it. Give and it will be given back to you. The Lord's plan for your life is to prosper you. So ask and you shall receive. Are all those verses really in the Bible? Yeah, yeah, they're all there. Absolutely. So is it... God's will for every single one of His children to be healthy, wealthy, and comfortable all the time? No. No, it's not. I have just... What I just did there, stringing all those verses together, uh, is an example of what many uh, teachers do who call themselves teachers of a prosperity gospel. 
really what, what that amounts to is reading the Bible like the devil. This is exactly what we see in Genesis chapter 3 in the Garden of Eden. And we see it again when Jesus is tempted by Satan in the wilderness. The devil apparently knows God's Word pretty well. And he will use it to his advantage. Use it to deceive us by ripping verses out of context. By twisting the truth just enough to totally change the meaning. Because the, the devil, of course, is the father of lies, the master of deceit, and the original prevaricator. One of the most dangerous and, and deadly lies, I think, that pervades the church today is this so-called prosperity gospel. Maybe not in this congregation or maybe not in other churches that you've been a part of. But if you look at the scope of the church in our nation and in the church around the world, this type of teaching that God wants all of His children all the time to be healthy and wealthy and comfortable, this is a very destructive teaching. And what does that have to do with Third John? Well, Third John verse 2 is one of the favorite verses that gets used to justify this idea. In 3 John, verse 2, John the Apostle prays for his friend Gaius. He says, I pray that all may go well with you and that you may be in good health. Some translations say, I pray that you would prosper in all things and that you would be in good health just as your soul prospers. This is taken to uh, justify the idea that God, it is God's will for your life to prosper, to be healthy all the time. This is what you should expect from God. This is what you should demand from God. Let me give you, a, there's a lot of different forms that this, take, that this takes. There's sort of a spectrum uh, that you may see out there uh, on TV, uh, in different books, if you browse any Christian bookstore or the Christian book aisle at a, at a bookstore, you'll come across some of these books from some of these teachers. But let me try to sort of distill maybe uh, three or four different core tenets uh, of this so-called prosperity gospel. Really, it's not a gospel at all. Really, it's a counterfeit gospel. Really, it's an anti-gospel. So here are a few key uh, tenets of this prosperity theology. The first one is that you deserve a comfortable, affluent lifestyle free of pain and sacrifice. This is basically the baptized version of the American dream. That you, you deserve everything good, everything that you would want. It's your, it's your inalienable right. But it's baptized so that now it's God who wants you to be healthy, wealthy, and comfortable all the time. And in fact, this is taken as a sign of spiritual maturity. If you're really spiritually mature, then you'll, have, you'll drive a really nice car, you'll wear really nice clothes, and live in a really nice house. The most extreme forms of this 
prosperity theology even try to manipulate God with formulas from, from taken from the Bible, um, trying to back God into a corner and twist His arm using some Bible verse that seems to, to promise uh, material wealth. It treats God as some sort of genie in a bottle. Another form that this takes is this idea that if you have enough faith, you can move mountains. And if you can move mountains, why can't you move money into your bank account? If you can move mountains, why can't you move those nice clothes off the shelf into your closet or that new car off the lot into your garage, right? If you have enough faith, you can do anything. You can have anything. Faith is no longer a a humble trust in Christ, but it becomes faith in faith itself. I have faith in my own faith. I have confidence in confidence. I have faith in my ability to have faith. Faith becomes a work, a tool that I use to get things from God. If I have enough faith, I can make God do whatever I want. Another form that uh, is popular is this idea that it takes teachings about uh, who we are in Christ and it distorts them all the way to the point that uh, no longer are you just in Christ and a, a beloved child of God, but you are almost elevated to some sort of demigod status. You have the power of the Holy Spirit. You share in God's divine nature. Therefore, you have the power to control your own destiny. Why should you be content with pain and suffering and lack of good things when you have the ability to change your own destiny? Some even go so far as to say that um, the words that you say um, can negatively shape your reality or positively shape your reality. Of course, words do have uh, great power, but not to the extent of overruling God's authority. And so the way this sometimes looks is that if somebody says uh, that they're sick or they're sad or they're discouraged, uh, somebody will, will say, oh, no, no, don't say that. Don't say that. Because that's going to bring curses on your life, brother. You need, to, you need to confess that you're healed by the, by the blood of Jesus. You need to confess that you're wealthy by the blood of Jesus. Don't say you're sick. Don't say you're poor. Don't say bad things about yourself. That's going to bring, that's going to bring uh, this bad things to happen to you. Sounds kind of crazy, but... Trust me, this stuff is out there. <laughs> uh, I, I know people. Uh, I've seen, seen this kind of thing destroy people's lives. It's all around us. None of this is new. The New Testament has many warnings about these very types of false teachings and those who spread them. We read one from 1 Timothy 6 this morning. And let's face it. Most of you, most Christians with any sort of basic Bible knowledge, 
don't need a whole lot of special discernment to be able to spot somebody who's just a, a huckster who's out there, you know, selling snake oil and getting rich off of Christians and, you know, flying around in their, you know, private jets and, and just making money off of their, uh, their ministry. It's more difficult, however, to detect the subtle ways in which this type of thinking can creep into our own attitudes and beliefs. These are the obvious forms. These are fairly easy to spot. What's more dangerous is the subtle forms, the insidious forms that seep into our own attitudes toward God. So let me suggest a couple of more subtle forms that this prosperity theology can take that we probably uh, need to be more aware of and more on guard against than uh, some of the more obvious forms. It's easy to slam people like, you know, Joel Osteen or, you know, Joyce Meyer or Benny Hinn. I mean, it's, it's easy to, to, to spot the, the obvious uh, heresy. It's easy to denounce the obvious false teachers, but we need to be uh, C.S. Lewis said that most men guard against other men's temptations. Right? It's easy to see where other people are off. It's not so easy to see where we're off. And so let me give you a few suggestions of some subtle forms of this prosperity theology. One, one of these forms is what you could call not the, pros, not the prosperity gospel, but the poverty gospel. This is just the mirror image of this prosperity theology. And this, this uh, thinking says not that health and wealth and material blessings are a sign of spiritual maturity, but that suffering and poverty are a sign of spiritual maturity. This is the, the, the assumption that anything you enjoy must be sub-spiritual. This is the idea that if I'm not suffering persecution or affliction, then I must be out of God's will. This is the idea that if you really want to be holy, you need to give up your comfortable life and do something really spiritual like be a missionary in Africa. Because if you're not doing that, then, well, you're sort of second class in the kingdom. Of course, this, this error refuses to appreciate and enjoy the blessings of God. And it effectively invalidates the vocations of most Christians as second class or sub-spiritual. This is one form that we see in different ways uh, taken to an extreme sometimes around us. Another form uh, that, we can, that we can encounter or that we can maybe unintentionally uh, come to embrace is the what I call the gospel according to Job's friends. This is the idea that bad things don't happen to good people. If things aren't going well for you, if you're discouraged or things are rough, 
Maybe you just need to pray harder and read your Bible more and repent of whatever sins going on in your life. Or, the flip side is that God will answer your prayer if you pray hard enough. This is what wrecked C.S. Lewis's faith when he was a young child and his mother was deathly ill. He was told that if he prayed hard enough, God would heal his mom. Well, his mom died. Guess what that did to his faith? He became an atheist because God, he didn't have enough faith. And what kind of God do you want to serve? Why serve a God who relies, you know, basically you, you, you become God in that scenario? Another form uh, that this, that we need to be watchful about that can creep into our own thinking is this related idea that uh, God helps those who help themselves. This oftentimes uh, applies to people who are in poverty. If you're poor, that's your own fault. Why should I help the poor? They need to. They they made their bed. Now they can lie in it. It's this subtle assumption that everyone everyone should get what they deserve. It's all about fairness. I've worked for mine, and you obviously didn't work for yours. You just get what you deserve. It's this idea that God helps those who helps themselves. But in a world where everyone gets what they deserve, there's no room for grace. And trust me, nobody wants what they really deserve. Uh, one other way, and, I, and there are multiple different forms that we could that we could discuss. But one other common uh, error or common uh, form that this type of thinking takes is the middle the middle class gospel. I deserve my comfortable life. I've obeyed God's word. I've worked hard. And if God takes takes that away from me, if God takes away my comfortable life, if God takes away a loved one, if God does anything to disrupt my comfortable life, it's just not fair. God has let me down. My, if your life doesn't turn out the way that you think it should, that you hope it will, we get our feelings hurt with God. How could God let me down like this? I, I did all the right things. I worked hard. I trusted God. And now God has let me down. I think that this disappointment with God that comes from this way of thinking is one of the leading causes of Christians turning away from the faith. Now, I think there are often a lot of other variables at work. It's usually much more complicated. You can't overgeneralize, but this, I think, is a common, a common theme in my generation especially, and in any generation, that people get disappointed with God, they get their feelings hurt, and get disappointed with the church because God let them down. The church let them down. And all of a sudden, we get mad at God because God disappointed us. How could God do this to me? 
Of course, usually when we ask that question, oftentimes our, the problem is that our image of God, our idea of God is horribly distorted. There's a saying that God created us in His image and we've been repaying the favor ever since. We create, we oftentimes recreate God in our own image. We make God to be what we want Him to be. And when things come crashing down, we're forced to, we have two choices. We can come face to face with the living God and we can abandon our idols. We can put away uh, our false ideas about God and humble ourselves before the true God. Or we can cling to our idols. We can cling to our distorted views about God and walk away from the church. Walk away from the faith. Now all of, of course, I've raised a lot of uh, questions. Uh, I've been painting with a very broad brush. And my intent this morning is not to do a full refutation of all of these different errors and heresies. Uh, if you, There are lots of good resources out there that I could recommend if you're uh, curious um, about some of these things that I've brought up. My, my main focus is that I want you to understand what 3 John verse 2 actually means. Those are all the distortions. Those are a lot of the errors. Those are a lot of the ways that this verse, this idea, gets twisted and distorted. But when we look at 3 John, we, when we consider verse 2 in context, what we find is that the Apostle John is actually refuting the very ideas that false teachers want to use 3 John 2 to promote. Let's look at, the, uh, at this verse more carefully and at, and at the context. Because that will show us what, uh, what uh, the good life really looks like, according to the Apostle John. John the Apostle wrote the letter that we call 3 John to a pastor or to a church leader named Gaius. He's commending Gaius for his generous hospitality, and he's condemning this man Diotrephes who's arrogant and rebellious and causing trouble in the church. In the midst of opposition, in the midst of personal expense and sacrifice, Gaius is continuing to show hospitality to missionaries who, are, who have been sent out by the apostles to plant churches. Gaius doesn't even know these missionaries. He doesn't know these church planters. But they've been sent by the apostles and he is dedicated to showing them hospitality at his own expense and in the face of this opposition. And so John writes this personal letter to Gaius. This is a letter directed only to Gaius. All the, all the pronouns, everything is second person singular. He's encouraging him to keep up the good work. And te- he even tells him, as we'll see, that Gaius, he says, Gaius, you're living the good life. You're living the good life. I know things are hard. I know there's a lot going on. I know you're 
sacrificing, you're having to give a lot of yourself. I know this guy, Diotrephes, is causing all kinds of trouble. Keep up the good work. You're living the good life. Let's look at exactly what he says in 3 John verse 2. He says, Beloved, or you could translate it, Dear Friend, because it's singular. Dear Friend, I pray that all may go well with you and that you may be well just as it goes well with your soul. Let me just take this apart briefly for you. John says, I pray that these things would happen. I pray that you would that things would go well for you and that you would be in good health. That should be your first sign that this is not a guarantee that this is God's will for every single Christian's life for you to be prosperous and in good health. This is something that we can legitimately pray for ourselves and for one another, but this is not some sort of money-back guarantee that this is what's going to happen in your life. But John is concerned for his well-being. He wants him to experience peace and wholeness in his life. So he prays that all would go well with Gaius. The word for go well here, uh, or prosper in some translations, is a word that means to be led along a good path. Or to have a successful journey. What John is praying for Gaius is that I pray that you would be led along a good path. I pray that God would grant you a successful journey. And so, I pray that things would go well with you. We use this language all the time. How's it going? What? What's going? No, how's it going? What? What is it? You know, we use this language of things going. Uh, what's going on? You know, are you? You know, how's that project going? Yeah, we're getting there, right? We use this language of traveling or journeying uh, to talk about how our life is, how our circumstances are. And this comes from this idea that to be led along a good path or to have a successful journey is to be blessed by God in the circumstances of your life, for things to go well, for things to go smoothly. And this is what John says is the case with Gaius' soul. At the end of the verse, John says, he says, I pray that all may go well with you, that you may be led along this good path just as it goes well with your soul. What he's saying is he's, he's encouraging him that your soul, things are well with your soul. Basically what he says. It is well with your soul, Gaius. You're living the good life. You're on the right path. You're having a good journey. I pray that your whole life would be that way. Not just with your soul. Not just with what I see in terms of your hospitality to these missionaries. But that all of your life would go well. And then he says, and that you would be in good health. Or that you would be well. That you would be sound. This word in the Septuagint is sometimes translated with the word Hebrew word shalom. Not in the Septuagint, but the Septuagint translates the Hebrew word shalom with this word. This idea of peace, of blessing in all aspects of life, of flourishing. 
This is what John prays for Gaius. So how can John say that it's going well with Gaius? That Gaius is living the good life when he's experiencing trials, when he's experiencing opposition, when he's giving of himself at great personal expense to provide hospitality for these missionaries that he doesn't even know. It is well with Gaius' soul, not in spite of his difficult circumstances, but because he is remaining faithful in the midst of these trials. It's his faithfulness in the midst of the trials that causes John to say, it's well with your soul, Gaius. This is the good life. And John goes on to encourage him uh, in the next few verses with the reports that these missionaries are bringing back. The ones that Gaius has shown hospitality to are coming back and saying that Gaius has integrity. In verse 3, John says, I rejoiced greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth. Maybe that means that Gaius has the sound doctrine that he's supposed to have, but it's your truth. It seems to be that Gaius is living consistently with his theology. He's not a hypocrite. He's living in consistent in consistency with his doctrine, with his theology. He has integrity. In verse 5, John says that it's a faithful thing you do in all your efforts for these brothers. Literally, you could translate that, it is, a, it is a faithful work you do. Or even, it is an act of faith. A work of faith. Gaius, Gaius is being faithful to the true apostles and not being led astray by false teachers. But he's also working out his faith by showing hospitality. His faith is bearing fruit in his life through service to others. And then in verse 6, John encourages Gaius and says that the brothers testified to his love before the church. Gaius doesn't just feel good feelings towards these missionaries and church planters. He doesn't just have warm feelings or wish them well or think highly of them. He selflessly sacrifices to serve them, to show hospitality to them. Just as Christ laid down His life for us, Gaius is laying down His life for these brothers. And in the face of His trials, in the face of His opposition, in the face of His sacrifice, He's living the good life. He's being led along the good path, not because his life is free of trials or free of sacrifice or free of hardship or opposition, but in the midst of those circumstances. He is showing himself faithful and God is blessing him. This is, by the way, this is the kind of... of Thing that we need not only to embody 
and seek to emulate in our own lives, as John goes on to say, he says in verse 11, do not imitate evil, but imitate good. This is the kind, Gaius is is an example for us, an example for hospitality, and and I want to spend more time on that idea uh, in another sermon. But this, by the way, is also what John does in commending Gaius for these things, is the kind of things that we need to be doing for one another especially people who are going through trials, who are going through difficulties, who are going through hardships. To say, you're living the good life, brother. It is well with your soul. In the midst of your trials, in the midst of your hardship, in the midst of this difficult circumstance, in the midst of, in the face of these people who are making your life miserable, it is well with your soul. You're living the good life. Keep up the good work. Keep steady on the faith. In the faith. Live out your faith. Keep showing integrity. Keep embodying your faith in your life. Keep laying down your life. Keep pouring yourself out. That's the good life. Gaius was living the good life. And maybe he needed John to remind him of that. By God's grace, Gaius was on the good path. In Deuteronomy, it's the way of life and the way of blessing. In Psalm 1, it's the path of righteousness. In the Proverbs, it's the way of wisdom. In the Gospels, it's the way of the cross. They're all the same thing. The the good life. It's the way of the cross, the way of self-sacrifice, the way of service, the way of pouring out our lives for the sake of others. Everybody wants to live the good life, right? Everybody wants to go to heaven, but nobody wants to die, right? Everybody wants to live the good life, but nobody wants the good life to look like this. Nobody wants the good life to look like trials and hardship and op- opposition and persecution and you know difficult neighbors and relatives and co-workers and all of these things. If that's the good life, you know, don't sign me up for that. We think the good life is getting everything we want. When actually it's found in learning contentment and gratitude for what we already have. We think the good life is found in getting what we deserve. When actually it's found in humbly accepting the grace we could never earn. We think the good life is when the universe revolves around us. When really the good life is the self-forgetfulness that comes when we lay down our lives in service to others. The good life, the way that we see Gaius living the good life, and the good life for us, is the way of the cross. Because that's where we find Jesus. If you want to meet Jesus, you'll meet Him on the way of the cross. The way of self-sacrifice. 
the way of service, the way of humility. If you're looking for meaning and purpose in life, if you're looking for friendship and a sense of belonging, if you're looking for joy and satisfaction, if you're looking for the good life, then pick up your cross, lay down your life, and follow Jesus. And then you can truly say, it is well with my soul. Let us pray. Gracious God, we thank You that You have shown us the good life, the way of blessing, the way of peace and joy, and that Christ has made it possible for us to journey with Him on that way, the way of the cross. Teach us to empty ourselves. Teach us to lay down our lives, to humble ourselves and service to You and to Your church and to those around us. Help us to, to truly find our lives by giving them away for Your glory and for, your, for the sake of Your name. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Let us pray. Almighty God and Heavenly Father, we are bold to come before You with prayers and petitions on behalf of Your church and the world because we have a great High Priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Grant us Your mercy and gracious help in our time of need. Father, we pray for the church that she would be found faithful at the coming of her Lord. Give to her true purity that she might be without spot or wrinkle and empower her by Your Spirit to bear the fruit of the kingdom and offer to You pleasing sacrifices of pure worship that flow out into faithful living. We pray especially for our pastor and officers and ask that You would fill them with Your Spirit of wisdom and understanding that they might shepherd and serve this congregation in Your strength. We also ask for Your blessing and provision for the CREC churches of the Athanasius Presbytery. Almighty God, we thank You that You have given the nations to Your Son as His inheritance. And we pray that His rule would indeed extend from sea to sea and from the river to the end of the earth. We ask that You would humble the kings of the earth who are in rebellion against the great King and subdue Your enemies with the breath of Your lips. We pray that Your peace would reign where there is war, especially in Iraq, Syria, and Ukraine. We pray that You would strengthen Your church in the face of affliction. Sovereign Lord, we ask that You would defend our persecuted brothers and sisters in places like North Korea, Cuba, India, Tanzania, Nigeria, and Iran. Trample Satan under our feet and give us courage to witness boldly to the risen and reigning Christ. We pray for Your blessing upon CREC churches in the U.S. and around the world, especially the Metaka Evangelical Church in Japan and the churches of the Joint Eastern European Project. Father, we pray for those who lead our own nation and ask that You would anoint them with Your Spirit so that they would rule in righteousness and justice. Bring us conviction of our sin and grant us repentance as a people. Purify Your church in our land so that our society would be renewed and reformed. To this end, bless the work of the Theopolis Institute and the upcoming Nevin Lectures. We also pray, Lord, for the protection of the vulnerable and oppressed. 
We ask You to preserve the freedoms that we enjoy. Deliver us from the rule of ungodly magistrates and judges. And give us courage to stand boldly for Your truth in a way that manifests Your glory and Your grace. And God of all comfort, we bring before You all who are afflicted and oppressed with poverty, sickness, unemployment, or any other trouble of body or mind. We pray for those who struggle with chronic afflictions, for Claude Jones and Ashley Hamblin and Michelle Stevenson and the Laughlins and Kia Shoku and Steve and Heather Dornan and Ashton Motes and Abel Motes. We give You thanks for the good report that Abel received last week and ask that You would uphold him. We pray for those battling cancer for Brenda Jordan and Caleb Hanby and Gregory Morris and Suzanne Shelton. We ask You to bless and sustain all expectant mothers and to strengthen all parents to faithfully fulfill their vocations in raising their children in the fear of the Lord. Bless our aging parents and grandparents as well as those who are caring for them. Grant us humility, O God, to submit to Your sovereign will and wise providence. Refine us through our afflictions and help us always to trust that You are indeed working all things together for Your glory and our good. Teach us contentment in every situation and the joy that comes when we lay down our lives for one another. All these things and whatever else You see that we need, grant us, O Father, for the sake of Jesus Christ, Your Son, who died and rose again and now lives and reigns with You in the Holy Spirit, one God, age after age. And now hear us as we pray as our Savior has taught us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil, For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.